Welcome to Stories from Among the Stars. You're listening to The Last Watch by J.S. Dewis. Chapter 12 Cavallon's first thought as the SGL began to decelerate from warp speed was to wonder if his name carried enough clout to buy his way onto a transport. After all, he should still have access to his private accounts, not to mention his trust fund. His father had been the progenitor, so Augustus, in theory, wouldn't have been able to touch it. However, that keyword, theory, he couldn't ignore. His grandfather's reach was unmatched, and as the unofficial autocrat of the Allied monarchies, he may have found a way to get his hands on it. So Cavallon might have been destitute. He really didn't know. The more important consideration was if anyone at Carngate would even question it. Cash on delivery to the core, from the mouth of a mercer, it could be a viable escape route. But any contemplations of going AWOL quickly evaporated when they slowed to cruising speed and approached the gate. Ah, uh, Emery ceased her obnoxious gum-chomping as she gaped at the viewscreen. Is that normal, sir? Jackin shifted uncomfortably in the pilot's seat. No, he said simply. He opened the comlink again. I repeat, Carngate, this is the SGL via the SCS Argus, requesting permission to dock. No response. Cavallon stood over Jackin's shoulder, trying not to gawk too openly. The Apollo Gates were another technology owed entirely to their former subjugators, the exorbitantly advanced Viators. The relays were the only reason mankind had been able to traverse and populate as much of the galaxy as they had. Cavallon's understanding of how they worked started and ended at the involvement of Terracene, a metamaterial devised by Viators that humans had yet to successfully reverse engineer. As far as Cavallon knew, no one had been able to figure out exactly how it worked, only that it did and that if they kept the stations powered and operational, the Terracene continued to function. His handful of degrees had focused on human-originated sciences, so he'd have to leave it to the likes of Mesa to understand anything beyond that. The station's construction reflected the typical Viator design motif of everything in threes. Its hull gradually increased in size from aft to bow, a long, narrow, triangular prism of matte black compressed aerosteel. Along the front face, three enormous vicious prongs protruded from each peak of the triangle, like some horrible three-beaked swordfish. Nestled between the spikes, usually, sat the churning ball of terracine. But not today. Instead of the raging yellow-green swirls of concentrated light, ready to fire your molecules a million light-years across the universe, the entire structure sat dark. Not a single ship docked at the bank of airlocks along the port or starboard side, and no one hovered nearby, waiting for their turn in the queue. The SGL's spotlight cut through the abyss and swept across the outside of the enormous station, easily five times the size of the Argus. Though it appeared intact, it showed no signs of life. They were still much too far from anything for any natural light to fall on the structure, but it shouldn't have been needed. Not only should the terracene have been operative, casting its sickly green hue out like a beacon into the void, but the structure itself should have been dotted with illumination from hull lights or the glow of observation windows within, 
Even for a gate this far on the edge of nowhere, there should have been some activity, even if only from the crew who ran the thing. Cavallon scratched his chin. I guess that's why I didn't come in this way. Jackin broke his despondent stare out the front of the ship to look at him. Yeah, I guess so. Warner rested his thick arms on the headrest of the co-pilot's chair. Sir, has it been decommissioned? Not that I'm aware of. Whether Jackin's gruff tone came from annoyance at not being informed by the Legion, or the colossal-sized wrench this situation threw in our current plans, Cavallon couldn't say. It doesn't matter, Jackin continued. We're not here for the relay. We only need to use their comms. Yeah, Warner said warily. But it doesn't look like anyone's home. Jackin chuffed. No, it really doesn't. Will we be able to dock? Emery asked. Probably, Jackin said, assuming their basic systems are still online. But we won't be able to get through the airlock without access from the other side. Cavallon licked his lips and squinted at the screen. To involve himself or not involve himself. What is it, Oculus? He looked down to find Jackin staring up at him expectantly. Uh, just thinking, Cavallon said. We can still latch on, right? Equalize? Open the hatch? Yes, but we won't be able to open the airlock door beyond that. I can open it. Let's dock. Jackin regarded him seriously for a few seconds, then turned back to the console. All right, let's grab that core and fill it up while we're here. Jackin steered them toward the starboard airlocks of Karin Gate, and Cavallon returned to the engine room. He'd just pulled the partially depleted warp core from the fuel compartment when Jackin's voice rang out over comms. Strap in. Grav's going ninety and ten. Nine. Cavallon hurried back to the common room. Emery and Warner had strapped into the half-circle bench, and Cavallon slid in beside them and harnessed in. Two. One. His stomach flopped, and his head grew heavy as he went from sitting on his butt to lying on his back. With a hollow clang, the ship drifted to a stop. A series of short handles hummed as they extended out from the floor, now the wall, leading up to the now vertical hatch in the center of the room. Jackin's voice crackled over comms. Docked. Damn shitty tiny transport vessels, Warner grumbled. The large man released his harness and slid awkwardly off the side of the bench. Cavallon released himself, shimmying his feet to land on the wall, now the floor, beside him. Jackin's head appeared through the doorway of the cockpit on the ceiling. Latched on fine. Looks like their systems are still online. He reached out and pressed the release switch for the hatch, and with a hiss of air and a clunk, the circular door opened. He gripped the door jam and swung through, feet clanging against the metal floor as he landed inside. Cavallon cradled the warp core in one arm and ascended the rungs, then dropped to the floor on the other side. A few narrow banks of crimson-hued lights dimly lit the primary airlock, the result of some kind of power-saving mode. Warner dropped in next, followed by Emery. She had a weapons belt around her waist, with three more clutched under her arm. She passed one to Warner, then Jackin, who strapped theirs on as effortlessly as one might tie a shoelace. She held the last one out to Cavallon, and he took it warily in his free hand, still clutching the warp core in the other. 
Emery approached the door that led into the gate and surveyed the dimmed access screen beside it. Systems are online. O2's reduced but safe. Pressure's good. Jack enjoined Emery and pressed his thumb into the corner of the screen. Karin, this is the crew of the SGL via the Argus. We're docked starboard, requesting airlock access at S6. Cavallon tucked the core under one arm to try and fasten on his weapons belt, but the soft black leather slipped through his fingers. Emery caught it before it hit the ground. He gave her an appreciative nod, and she plucked the core from his grasp before offering the belt back to him. Karn, please respond, Jackin said, his tone decorous yet resigned. He clearly just wanted to be able to say he'd followed protocol. He knew no one would answer. Cavallon fumbled for a few moments until he got the belt secured around his hips. On one side hung a narrow sheath, which held a long, serrated combat knife. A heavy black laser pistol sat against the other thigh. He flashed Emery a grin, trying to appear casual. No one here knew that he hadn't been taught to shoot a gun, and that he more than likely shouldn't be allowed anywhere near one. He suddenly wished he'd been made to endure the basic training required of all new Legion recruits. Jackin crossed his arms and gave the airlock door a skeptical once-over. What's your plan here, Oculus? This is a redundant airlock, right? Cavallon asked. Yeah, this is the primary. Secondary we can unlock from inside if we can get in there. Cavallon walked up to the sealed doorway. And we're definitely equalized? Emery, still clutching the warp core, stood on her tiptoes and squinted through a small observation window. All green in there. Good to go, boss. Cavallon pushed up his sleeves and his skin buzzed as his imprints energized. They wove a path up his arm, trickling into his back and shoulders. Mouth full of the taste of copper, he spared a short-lived thought of concern for volatile interfacing, then ripped the door from its track. With a small hiss, the air between the two spaces equalized, and to Cavallon's intense relief, they didn't lose pressure. The heavy door groaned as he set it aside. Jackins stared at Cavallon's arm with impressed interest as the gold and bronze squares settled back into their standard formation. Jackin nodded slowly. Huh. Holy shit, Emery said, mouth agape, her purple gums stuck between her tongue and teeth. That was awesome. Warner leaned forward, eyes narrowing as he stared at the imprints. You're the one the guys have been talking about, aren't you? The Royal? Nope, Cavallon shook his head. Definitely not. Royal? Emery piped. No shit. That's ridiculous, Cavallon gave a stilted laugh. What would a Royal be doing in the Legion? Jackin crossed his arms. Emery and Warner just stood and stared at him. Cavallon cleared his throat. Should we go inside or do you all just want to stand here and ogle me? Jackin and Warner shook their heads as they crossed through the open threshold and into the secondary airlock. Emery remained, a smug grin on her face. I think I'd rather ogle. Cavallon rolled his eyes and brushed past, Emery following close behind. Inside, Warner tapped the screen beside the secondary airlock door, and it slid open. A dark corridor lay beyond, splitting off left, right, and straight all lit with the same dim red lights as the airlock. Hold up, Jackin said. 
Cavallon looked down to find the Optio crouched beside the primary door. He squinted at a small, crooked device fastened low beside the doorframe. What's that? Emery asked. I don't know, Jackin mumbled. Doesn't look legion, Warner said. Jackin stood back up and took a deep breath, brow furrowed. No, it doesn't. Cavallon shifted his weight, doing his best to mask his discomfort. The more outwardly rattled Jackin became, the harder it grew to pretend like some seriously weird shit wasn't going on. Emery, Warner, take the core to the refueling station, Jackin said. Yes, sir, Warner replied. And it might appear abandoned, but be careful. Sweep the corridors, follow protocol, no shortcuts, quick but safe. You got it, sir, Emery said. Meet us in the control room when you're finished. Yes, sir she said. Warner followed as she turned on her heel and headed aft with the warp core. Cavallon, you're with me. Jackin turned the opposite way toward the front of the station, and Cavallon fell in line behind him. The eerily lit corridors matched the oppressive viator design of the exterior, with walls of slanted aerosteel slabs layered atop one another like thick, dark scales. The angled walls narrowed as they moved deeper into the station, like traversing the dark bowels of some ancient, formidable beast, the innards constricting as they drew closer to the core. Cavallon tried to shake off his growing sense of unease. He followed his jack and made a sharp turn down another dimly lit corridor. How the Optio knew where to go, Cavallon had no idea. Though he'd traveled via Apollo gates a few times, he'd never had cause to actually dock at one. The way Jackin strode forward without question suggested a familiarity that went beyond a general knowledge of station layouts. You seem comfortable here, Optio, Cavallon remarked. Were you stationed at a gate before? Jackin didn't respond at first, but after a few moments he spoke up. No, but I know every asset in the Legion fleet. Oh? Were you an engineer, or? I was chief navigations officer for the first. Cavallon's mouth dropped open, partly from his bluntness, but mostly from the admission. No shit? No shit, Jackin said, tone completely devoid of sentiment. That's like... Cavallon collected himself with an effort. Really? Really. The next logical question went something like, well, why the fuck are you here? But that seemed impolite to ask among sentinels, and it would likely lead to retaliatory questions like, well, why the fuck are you here, accompanied by accusatory, distrustful glares. Cavallon chose not to press his luck. Yet he couldn't help his surprise. He didn't know the specifics of the Legion's hierarchy, but CNO was as household of a term as Praetor or Titan. Jackin would have been in charge of coordinating movements for an entire fleet for the first, no less, which comprised the majority of the Legion's forces, including the Titans and Vanguard. What was it with the Argus? It was like some isle of misfit war heroes. Cavallon was just waiting to discover Emery'd been a decorated centurion. Warner was probably a praetor. Cavallon chewed his lip as a slew of questions conjured in his mind. Had Jackin been active at the same time as Rake? He had to be into his early 40s, which meant he could have come to the Argus before the Resurgence War. Though that would have made him a very young CNO. Even if they did serve at the same time, 
Did the first even interact directly with the Titans? Or was that one of those things like saying, oh, you're from Elysia? Do you know Mr. Smith? As if you've met every single person on your planet. Cavallon discarded his careening train of thought before it derailed entirely. He refocused his mental efforts on being unduly paranoid about the dark, ominous corners they walked past as the sinister walls closed in around him. They finally came to the end of the corridor, which fanned out into a wide doorway. Jackin typed a code into a screen beside it, and the door slid open, revealing some kind of control room. Six stations sat in pairs around each face of a triangular platform. When active, the central platform likely showcased some kind of data center or map, but presently sat vacant. Jackin slid into one of the seats and pressed both hands into the black monitors recessed into the top of the terminal. Moments later, the screens radiated a soft, yellow-green glow, and the terminal flickered to life. Jackin pushed the green holographic screens into the air, then sat back and swept through menus. The reactor is still fully functional, he mumbled. Mainframe is online. He slid across a few controls with his thumb, and the overhead lights raised to a dim glow. So, they just turned off the lights and left? Cavallon asked. Jackin shook his head as he stared at the display. When's the last log? Three months ago he said quietly. Cavallon scoffed. Three months? Fuck. Jackin's brow furrowed, and he leaned back in his seat. What? Does it say why they left? Jackin remained quiet for a few moments, then took a sharp breath in. It says redacted. Cavallon slid into the chair next to Jackin. Okay, let's be serious for a minute, Optio. Last I checked, relay gates are some seriously important strategic resources. When was the last time the Legion abandoned an Apollo gate? Jackin continued staring at the interface. Maybe during the Viator War. Yeah, the Viator War, 200 years ago. Something's going on. Jackin finally broke his glower and turned to him, dark brown eyes equal parts worried and resigned. Like what? Well... I suppose the Viators might have spontaneously reanimated and murdered everyone. Jackin rolled his eyes. In which case, there's a distinct lack of blood and guts and destruction. Or, or, maybe the Legion's no longer supporting the Sentinels. They couldn't really lend us less support than they already do. Well, Cavallon gestured at the lifeless station around them. This certainly seems to demonstrate that. It doesn't matter. Jackins said, jaw firm. We'll deal with that later. We're on a schedule. Let's get the comms on and get them on the horn. Cavallon nodded. You're the boss. Jackin turned back to the terminal, sweeping through menus. After a few minutes, a negative tone beeped, and the screen cast a red glow on his furrowed brow. He leaned forward, trying the input again, but got the same results. Damn, Jackin said. We're getting interference. From what? I don't know. He tapped the controls and tried again. I might be able to boost the signal. Physically or... Cavallon wiggled his fingers at the computer. Via the code. Either, Jack inside. Both. Okay, tell me what you need. Jack stared back at him skeptically. Cavallon held his hands up. 
Only trying to help, Optio. I can go adjust stuff in the comms room if you want to do your thing with the code here. Divide and conquer and all that. Jackin's look faltered, then he cleared his throat. We might need parts. Things they'd have here? Not likely. Well, Cavalline said. The Argus has a whole sector full of comms that don't work, right? We could pilfer that. There's no time to go back. We need to get them on the line, stat. You know, you keep talking about this deadline, Cavalon said. Makes a guy a bit nervous. The piercing clang of an alarm droned out Cavalon's voice. The dim room instantly filled with sharp flashes of blue and red light. Shit. Jackin slid out of the comms menu, then swept a video feed up onto the main view screen above the triangular platform. He activated the station's hull lights, and a series of beaming spotlights fired out into the void. Cavalon's mouth dropped open as a vessel careened out of the darkness, the station's lights illuminating the hull of a mangled, grisly cargo ship. That's... Cavalon began but couldn't continue because all he could think was fuck, 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 fuck. Jackin swallowed. Drudgers. Chapter 13 The fighting had already begun in earnest when the lift door slid open and Adequin stepped out. The tension binding her shoulders loosened somewhat. If they were focusing on beating one another up, then they weren't focused on beating the door down. Across the circular vestibule, more than 60 soldiers had gathered near the sealed bulkhead door of Octosector. Some merely argued, while others engaged in scuffles or tried to stop fights. Adequin headed around the arcing corridor toward the commotion. Mesa followed just off her shoulder. They arrived on the outskirts of the pack, where a tall, brutish oculus clutched another in a headlock. A young circuiter, Walsh, stood nearby, furious. Barrow, stand down, she yelled. The man responded by wrenching his grip tighter. Walsh held up her wrist to indicate her nexus. Don't make me. Oh, Barrow mocked, glaring. Don't make me. But Walsh already had her nexus screen open. Then Barrow's face contorted and his knees buckled. He landed on all fours, and his hostage tumbled to the ground as well. Adequin picked up the discarded man by his shoulders. To the mess, she growled, pointing a harsh finger toward the lift. Yes, sir, the oculus scrambled away. Two other circuiters stood among the commotion, fingers dancing across their nexus screens as they activated their oculi's imprints to discipline them into submission. However, not everyone's CO was there, and they only had control over their direct subordinates. Adequin turned to find Barrow up on his feet again. He grabbed another oculus by the front of his vest. Walsh seethed. Barrow, I thought I- The circuitor's mouth opened helplessly as she glanced between the standing Barrow and the Barrow still writhing on the floor in pain from his activated imprints. It was then Adequin realized there were more like 30 soldiers, accompanied by a whole host of doppelgangers. They flashed in and out of existence, an unwelcome addition to the chaos. Even on a normal day, time ripples put them on edge. Exacerbated by seeing something unknown outward, 
seeing anything outward? No wonder they were getting worked up. Soldiers, Adequin shouted, but her voice barely cut through the din. No one reacted. Her imprints buzzed across her shoulders as she walked into the ruckus, heading for a fight that had just broken out between two scrawny men. On the way, an oculus crashed into her, then sprawled to the ground at her feet. She picked him up by the front of his vest and tossed him toward the wall, but he disappeared before he hit it. A half second later, the same man crashed into her and she repeated the throw, but this time he slammed into the wall. He turned and glared at her, then recognition dampened his ire. Mess, she growled. He immediately hurried away toward the lift. Adequin took in the commotion around her, men and women shouting, threatening, throwing punches, and arguing with their duplicates about which one was real. Cavallon's words from a few days ago gnawed at the back of her mind. Are you the warden? It had been a serious question at the time, but she could just imagine the snarky way in which he'd re-deliver it now. She was glad he wasn't there. Although she'd rather he was, that he'd already returned with Jackin, Legion transports in tow. She didn't know how much longer she could force calm. She opened her Nexus interface, finger hovering over the master control. She hated causing them pain, but she needed them to stop acting like Neanderthals for five minutes so she could concentrate on how to save their lives. With a single swipe, their angry jibes receded into cries of pain. Most fell to their knees, cradling their arms. All except the doppelgangers, who continued to pop in and out of existence at a slow but steady pace. After a few moments, the soldiers' pained wheezing ceased in favor of labored breaths. But the silence didn't last. They began to shout over one another, unleashing a tirade of concerns. We saw the lights. Something's incoming. What's going on, EX? Barrow broke my fucking nose. It's a Viator fleet. Shut up, she barked, and their voices fell away. She swept her hardened glare across them. What was the plan here, soldiers? We need the armory, someone insisted. You do not need weapons, she said, letting out an exasperated sigh. She could only imagine how this would have gone if they'd managed to arm themselves first. We saw something outward, one explained. It's a ship or something, another called. That was a visual anomaly, nothing more, she said. We're seeing time ripples from crafts traveling the divide elsewhere. She wet her lips, shocked by how easily the lie formed and fell out of her mouth. The soldiers gaped, as surprised by the assertion as she was. Since when does that happen? Someone in the back called out. What about the sealed sectors? Another accused. The rerouted power is part of routine systems maintenance, Adequin said. Among the shuffling feet, a few brave souls scoffed. She clenched a fist, but chose to let it go. Since you're all panicking like hysterical children, she continued, I'm ordering a full lockdown. Unless you're assigned to an essential life systems post, you're to remain in the mess until further notice. After a heavy pause, Walsh's voice cut through the silence. You heard her, Oculi, to the mess. 
the soldiers obeyed and rose to their feet, heading toward the lift. Adequin darted a glare to Walsh and the other two circuitors. They shuffled over to stand in front of her. What the fuck, circuitors, she said. Walsh smoothed the front of her vest anxiously. Sorry, sir, they just got so whipped up so fast. Cut the excuses. You need to keep things calm while I deal with other shit. It'd help if they could go back to Novum, sir. Well, they can't, so do your damn jobs and keep them in line. Their faces fell into dejected frowns, but they nodded their understanding. Keep the instigators separated. I don't want any more fighting. Adequin opened her nexus and input a quick command. I'm releasing full imprint control to all circuitors. Don't use it unless you have to, but do not let them break down any bulkhead doors. Got it? Yes, sir. Sorry, sir. The circuitors left toward the lift, and Mesa's lithe form drifted into Adequin's periphery. She'd have forgotten the savant had come with her. I'm headed back to the bridge, Adequin said. You okay, Mace? Mesa regarded her steadily for a few drawn-out moments before she spoke. Yes, Exupiter, fine. Thanks for letting me know. Sorry about the comms, I'll get- Jackin. She wanted Jackin. Someone on it. You are welcome. Adequin inclined her head to the savant and left, heading toward the bridge. She had every intention of actually going there, but as she passed the corridor to her office, her feet veered and she found herself standing in front of her desk. She needed a minute, just a minute. What was she doing? Lying to everyone and ignoring what was so clearly happening, it had to be some kind of denial. She had to snap herself out of it. It didn't take long to determine why. She'd been crushing it under everything else, forcing it out of her mind because left unchecked, it threatened to overwhelm her. Admitting the divide had started moving toward them meant admitting Griffith was in trouble. Serious mortal danger, and she couldn't do a damn thing to stop it. She could have. She could have taken that warp core and that Hermes and headed outward instead of inward. She could have hopped on the divide and tried to track down the Tempest, warned them before it was too late. But could a Hermes even withstand the turbulence of riding the divide? It had been built to handle warp speeds, but hadn't been cleared to travel via Apollo gates. She didn't even know if that mattered. Relays were more like a shortcut through space-time than increased speed. But she could have tried, or at least asked Jackin if it were possible. But she'd lost her chance to go after him. She'd resigned Griffith to death. Her heart seized, and she'd tried to force it to maintain a steady beat, but her breath came in short, hot rasps, and she couldn't impose calm. She braced both fists on her desk and leaned forward, looking down at her scuffed boots, head spinning. Silken draped feet shuffled in behind her. Exuberter. Mesa, I'm fine, just having a think, panicking. Overwhelmed, Mesa answered. That is reasonable, Exuberter. It wasn't, not really. Adequin sucked in a deep breath, then let it out slowly. She turned to face Mesa. 
The savant's brilliant eyes were patient and deadly serious. Why are we drifting outward? Adequin opened her mouth, expecting another lie to fall out, but her breath caught in her throat. We're not. Puck's voice drifted in as the door whizzed open across the room. He marched up to stand over Mesa's shoulder, scorn in his eyes. Are we, EX? Mesa turned her bewildered look away from Puck back onto Adequin. What? Where's North? Puck asked, tone full of impatient accusation. Warmth flooded Adequin's face. Though every instinct told her to keep up the farce, she knew the time to come clean had long passed. He took a Hermes to Karin Gate to request assistance from the Legion. He's bringing ships back with him. Ships, Mesa asked. For what? For the crew. Of the Argus? Why? Puck nodded, his suspicions apparently confirmed. Because we need to get off this one. Mesa's soft features paled. Puck gripped the back of his head, and the muscles in his face and neck wrung taut. Why didn't you tell me this earlier? Is that what we were seeing on the bridge? That light? I don't know what that was. So they really did see something out the observation windows? Mesa asked. Yeah, Puck said. The divide. Mesa's over-large eyes grew even larger. They saw the divide. There is nothing to see, and we are millions of kilometers. Adequin shook her head. Not anymore. You should have told me when you first called me, Puck bristled. I could have told you it wasn't going to be enough. Isn't it? She asked. Three times the thruster speed isn't good enough? Fuck no, Puck said. Not by half, not by anything. Its speed is increasing at a rate I can't calculate. We should be abandoning ship, not trying to salvage it. I'm not trying to salvage anything. There's just nowhere for us to go. Yes, there is, he said. We spin up however many away ships we have left in storage and get everyone on board. Sublight will be fast enough to keep us out of it for a while. Then we figure something else out. How's that work, Puck, she said derisively. We could maybe cram 20 people onto one ship. So what? We'd only need 10 ships to make that work. How many are in storage? One. One what? One is in storage. Puck's hardened grimace dissolved. One Hermes? Two, including the one Jackins got. Fuck. Puck pressed his fingers against his mouth and let out a sharp breath through them. He lowered his hands and his tone softened. It's gonna be here, soon. We have to abandon ship. Now, if that's 20 people, then it's 20 people. No fucking way, yes, Puck said. Who gets on the Hermes? Adequin's cheeks burned. I can't make that call. You have to. I can't, her heart raced, and that same loss of control threatened to seize her again. I can't, she repeated. Mesa nodded and laid her hands together lightly, her look sensible. The savant's serene composure simultaneously soothed and infuriated Adequin. 
Then we follow standard evacuation procedure, Mesa said. There are no civilians, so protocol is rank, correct? Adequin nodded once. How many can we realistically put aboard a Hermes and not overweigh it? Standard complement is eight, Puck answered. Without warp, we're gonna need to save room for supplies, but they're built to accommodate a full crew for six months. Yeah, I'd say 20's right. Very well, Mesa continued. Are comms still inoperative? Puck looked at his nexus. Working at the moment. Instruct the hangar to ready the ship, then summon the 15 senior-most circuitors to the bay at once. We will meet them there. Puck opened a comms menu on his nexus. Joss? Lace's static-filled voice came through seconds later. Emmaus, what the hell's going on? I'll explain later, he said. Just scramble that last Hermes and get it ready to fly. Understood. A din of crackling static overtook Lace's voice before the connection cut out completely. Puck's brow furrowed. Comms are down. Shit, whole network's gone. I can't warn anyone else. Mesa gave a curt nod. Very well, we will collect who we can along the way. She and Puck turned together and headed for the door. Adequin didn't move. They stopped in the doorway and looked back at her. Sir, Puck said, let's go. I'm not going. EX, you're at the top of the list, like a dozen ranks above any of us. I'm not going. Like hell. I can't do that. You have my permission to take the last Hermes. Puck marched back toward her. Don't pull this going down with the ship crap. We need you with us. Deja vu swept over her at Puck's insistent tone. His eyes, both pleading and panicked, reminded her of something she couldn't quite put her finger on. That's not going to happen, Adequin said. Jack will return from Karin soon. They'll bring ships, and I need to be here when they do. Help get everyone on board. Rake, that's over, Puck insisted. It's too late. We have to take who we can and leave, right now. Twenty souls, that's your solution? Better than zero, he growled. Adequin's imprints vibrated along with a spike of annoyance. Watch yourself, circuiter. I'm sorry, sir, but we can't waste any more time. Remember when those visual pings said 35,000 kilometers? Well, by now, they say 10,000. And if that's really the divide rushing toward us, then we have minutes. He reached toward her, ready to usher her forward. So let's go. She looked at his open palm, and realization washed over her as she recalled what this reminded her of. That time ripple where Cavallon stormed into her quarters and insisted she go with him to the ship. She couldn't quite draw the lines between the two, but she supposed if she hadn't sent him with Jack in, it could have been him trying to force her to leave instead of Puck. She cleared her throat. Get whoever you can aboard that Hermes. Karin Gate will be the rendezvous. Puck dropped his hand. Mesa stepped up next to him, crossing her thin arms. Take as much food and water as you can, Adequin continued. It's 14 weeks at ion speed to Karin. 
Mesa's exasperated look remained patient. Puck's anger thawed, but the pity left in its place wasn't any better. They didn't say anything, but they didn't have to. She knew they meant to overrule her. Adequin shook her head. You don't make the orders here. Neither of you do. This is my choice. Puck's scowl deepened. There's no way in hell I'm- A din of blaring alarms buried the remainder of his words. Adequin grimaced at the piercing clang, then a sudden movement caught her eye. On her desk, the rings of the golden astrolabe spun wildly. It tilted slowly before spilling off the side of the desk as if knocked by some unfelt gust of wind. What the hell was that? Puck called over the din of alarms. Adequin shuddered, and a sharp tingle rushed up her spine. She stumbled to catch her footing as the decking swelled and shifted, like a retreating wave pulling the sand from beneath her feet. A surge of vertigo spun her vision and the floor dropped. Her imprints sped across her skin, rushing to protect her. Her shielded elbows and knees hit hard, the pain deadened as if the floor had been covered with thick carpet. The room bucked and swayed once more before settling still again. Adequin's pulse hammered in her throat as she righted herself. Instead of returning to their default location, her imprints fanned out, buzzing and clicking to take up a long, unused combat formation along the backs of her limbs, up her spine, wrapping around her abdomen. A few meters away, Puck winced and shook out a wrist as he stood. Mesa picked herself up in an alarmingly dignified manner, waving off Puck's offer of assistance. Adequin met Mesa's worry-lined eyes for a heartbeat before the floor vibrated again, sliding beneath her feet like a receding tide. The nape of Adequin's neck tingled sharply and her skin hummed, every hair on her body standing on end. A rushing hiss drew her attention to the door, which unsealed of its own accord, locking into the open position. The blaring alarms shifted to a new staccato rhythm, shrieking in sync with the pulsing crimson and blue beacon above the doorway, the alert to take up battle stations. A burst of hard-edged white light flooded the outside corridor. Adequin and Puck rushed out, Mesa following in their wake. Adequin jogged down the hall and around the corner toward a mid-sector bulkhead. At the farthest end of the long corridor, a blinding glint of sharp white light reflected off the decking and walls and ceilings, forking like bolts of lightning igniting across the metal. She gaped at the strange display until a sliver of movement caught her eye. A ways down the long corridor, Bray rounded a corner and raced toward them, another man trailing a few meters behind. It took her a moment to recognize the other soldier, a stocky man with a mess of unkempt red hair whose duty vest hung open unstrapped. Aller Arandis, a problem circuiter who'd been dumped on her a year ago by the aging commander of the Typhus. She'd put him in damage control to try and give him some focus. Though incidents were rare, keeping a 200-year-old dreadnought up to safety codes proved a literally endless task. Bray and Arandis sprinted through the bulkhead doorframe as if it were some kind of finish line.
Arandis had already opened his nexus and touched it to the control screen to establish a local connection. Adequin dashed forward to intercept, but arrived too late. The massive bulkhead door blared a single warning, then roared shut. What are you doing? She snapped. The door hissed and the control screen sounded an affirmative tone as the seal pressurized. This is the only throughway to the bridge. And the fastest way to the mess, where she'd just sent over 30 soldiers to cool off. 30 soldiers who were now trapped in the port bow of the ship. Arandis turned his pallid, sweat-glistened grimace onto her. Sorry, sir, he growled, but there's no bridge anymore. Bray pushed out a sharp breath and paced from the sealed door. Adequin gripped his shoulder, stopping him in his tracks. Oculus. Bray's look snapped to her, his invariably neat, slicked-back black hair a disheveled mess, the usual steadfastness in his gray eyes, overtaken by a haunted, glassy expression. What happened? She demanded. No idea. Arandis answered, marching away from the control screen. Before the network crashed, the damage control system said half the port bows breached, but it happened damn fast. Whoever's shooting at us must have some kind of new tech. Bray shook his head and mumbled. That's not what's going on. Sir, what do we do? Arandis asked, clueless to Bray's shocked stupor. The auxiliary bridge was refabbed into the psych ward, right? We need some kind of helm control to try and reboot shields. It's cutting through us like butter. It's got to be an energy weapon or something, but not like anything I've seen. Adequin stared at him mutely for a few long moments, finding a strange comfort in the naivety of his earnest words. She truly, honestly wished it really were an enemy vessel. Marauder, Drudger, Viator. Hell, even first contact with a new angry species going on some intergalactic murder spree. At least it'd be something they could fight, something they had a chance in the void at defeating. Then she realized the other soldiers would all be thinking the same thing as Arandis, that they were being fired on, that battle had commenced, that they should be running toward action stations. But of course they didn't realize what was really happening. Why would they? The laws that defined the universe had changed, and she'd kept it a secret. She'd done nothing, told no one except Jacken, who she'd sent light years away with their only warp core. Which meant she hadn't merely resigned Griffith to death. She'd killed them all. A dense weight crushed against her chest, stealing the air from her lungs. She thought it was some kind of quick-onset panic attack until she glanced to the others. Puck, Mesa, Bray, Arandis, all wide-eyed, cradling their stomachs or clutching at their necks, seeming in various states of being choked to death. Her eyes darted, searching for a cause, while her lungs heaved, constricting and aching for breath. Then, in an instant, it vanished. The pressure ceased and air rushed back in like a valve had been opened. Adequin stretched her jaw as her eardrums popped, sending a spike of pain deep into her already aching skull. What's going on? Puck choked out. 
He put a steadying hand on Mesa's shoulder as the savant wheezed a series of short, sharp breaths. Bloody void, Orandus cursed, and Adequin followed his wide-eyed stare over to the bulkhead door. A duplicate Orandus hunched over the controls, tapping furiously at the screens. His outline flickered and wavered, then morphed, the pallid, stocky form stretching upward and inward into a cultish, bronze-skinned man, Puck. Duplicate Puck worked the controls, throwing furtive glances over his shoulder, sweat dripping down his temples. I can't hack damage control permissions without network access. Ack, ack. The ripple stuttered, blurred trails dragging out behind before it evaporated. Adequin stood staring at the now empty space, momentarily frozen in the still blaring din of the condition alarms. Arandis cleared his throat. Good thing I'm here, I guess. Puck slid Arandis a suspicious glare, as if suddenly questioning the man's true existence. The klaxons ceased, casting the corridor in a blanket of oppressive silence. A deadened thump still echoed in Adequin's ears, like an afterimage of sound. She sucked in a deep breath, and an order fell out of her mouth, the word cutting sharply in the unnerving quiet. Hanger. Puck nodded and spun to run down the hall. Mesa gathered up her silk folds and followed, with Bray close behind. Sir, Arandis said, pausing beside her. The automated DC system is down. We should manually seal any bulkheads we pass, or the whole ship could depressurize before we even get to the hangar. Understood. There isn't another one until the amidship vestibule. He nodded and took off, and Adequin followed. When they arrived at the circular vestibule, Arandis paused to quickly seal the bulkhead behind them. Across the way, a pack of soldiers stood gathered around the lift. Sir, one called out across the open atrium. The lifts aren't working, and we can't find a clear way to the bridge. With us, she shouted, then caught Puck's eye as they jogged around the wide arc. We need to cut through crew quarters to the aft ladders. Can you repressurize Novum from here? Puck bared his teeth and gave a reluctant hiss. Technically, no. But he approached the sealed door anyway, activating the control panel. She used the reprieve to catch her breath and did a cursory headcount as the newcomers joined them. Fifteen total, sixteen including Lace. They could still save another four, if they could find anyone. She grimaced as a grating groan of metal roared and shook the ship. A shrill, onerous shriek reverberated through the walls, as if the entire deck might split at the seams. The noise vanished, the heavy silence left in its wake even more unnerving. Got it, Puck called. A much-needed swell of relief filled Adequin's chest as the door to Novum slid open. The group of soldiers fell in behind Puck and Mesa, filing into Novum sector. Adequin started toward the open bulkhead when a deep-seated sense of dread descended, crushing into her chest until her breaths became short and shallow. Her boots gripped the floor less and less, her joints loosening, spine rounding as the pressure slackened until she'd lost touch with the ground entirely. 
Ahead, concerned shouts rebounded through the group as they were all relieved of weight. Sir, someone shouted, panic lacing their tone. Adequin craned her neck to look over her shoulder at Bray a few meters behind, reaching forward as he slid backward across the decking away from her. She pivoted around her center of gravity to face him, but her prior momentum still carried her toward the Novum threshold. She growled, throwing her arms and legs out, frustration tightening her chest as she desperately tried to grab or kick something to propel herself back out. But in the weightlessness, any seam or bar or foothold lining the corridor had become hopelessly out of reach. Bray's feet lifted from the deck, and he tilted forward as he floated, no, fell, his body horizontal, as if only his gravity had flipped 90 degrees. He shouted as his feet clipped the railing, and he spun into the open air above the atrium, plunging straight across toward the port bow. Adequin watched in stunned horror as pieces of the vestibule tore free, Floor panels, terminal screens, fire suppression rails, cabling conduits, light banks. Some dropped quickly, others slow, but none slower than Bray, who fell away as if sinking through thickened water. The Unum bulkhead door lit with a blaze of colorless light, then Adequin blinked. She forced her eyes to refocus, trying to make sense of what had happened. The wall wasn't there anymore, but it hadn't vanished, and there was nothing left in its place. She squinted, trying to force herself to see it, but it was futile. For a fraction of a second, her mind tried to reject the idea, struggling for an accurate way to conceptualize it. The bulkhead hadn't been dismantled, or disintegrated, or vaporized. It just wasn't. The distinction settled in her bones unsettlingly quick. She inherently understood it, like any other force of nature. If she leapt off of a cliff, she would fall. If whatever that was reached her, she would cease to exist. A billowing suction of air yanked her sideways. Then her weight slammed back into her and the deck rushed up. She tucked her chin and jolts shot down her shoulder and spine as she crashed all but head first into the grated metal floor, white spots flaring in her vision. She ignored the surge of pain and pushed up to her feet. But before she could take a single step to go after Bray, two sets of hands grabbed her from behind and yanked her through the doorway. Still falling into the nothing beyond, Bray screamed, reaching toward her. Another flare of white light erupted, overtaking him. The bulkhead siren blared, and the door slid shut in front of her, cutting off the rush of air. The hissing seal echoed in the dampened silence. Flares of white light burned in the backs of her eyes as she stared unblinking at the dull gray metal barrier. Heat ignited in her chest, and her imprints tore across her skin. She blindly shoved away the people who'd grabbed her and leapt up. Her silver and copper imprint squares coated the outsides of her fists as she banged on the sealed bulkhead. Her pulse pounded in her ears, and she threw a fire-eyed glare to Arandis, who stood wide-eyed at the door controls. 
Circular, she shouted. Open this door. Arandus hesitated. His pale skin flushed a deep red. Puck yanked him back. Go. Arandus took off down the hall. Adequin balled her fists and clenched her jaw. A thin, clammy grip tightened around her arm. Her imprints buzzed on instinct, but as she turned to throw the offender off, she froze. Mesa stared up at her, a deluge of sweat dampening thin strands of black hair against her warm beige skin. There is nothing to be done, Mesa said, large eyes glistening, each breath labored and wheezing. Though an influx of adrenaline still twitched in Adequin's fingers and quickened her pulse, the savant's palpable worry extinguished her rage. Sir, Puck shouted, we have to keep moving. Adequin's eyes jolted up to the tail of the advancing group, where Puck waved an arm to urge her on, right behind Mesa, who ran a few meters in front of him. The lithe grip on her arm firmed. Her eyes slid back to her side, but no one was there. A burgeoning lump threatened to close her throat, but she swallowed it back, shaking the looping image of Bray screaming from her mind. She forced one foot in front of the other. She rushed to follow, catching up as the group gathered at the entrance to the access ladders. She swept her clearance to unlock the door and ushered each person down, watching the steady silence of the corridor behind her as if it might erupt into flashes of static light at any moment. When the last soldier in line entered, Adequin made a cursory check for any stragglers, then followed them in. A wall of heat hit her as she climbed into the narrow shaft. Sweat dampened her jacket and stuck the heavy fabric to the skin of her back by the time she descended all four deep levels. At the hangar entrance, they were greeted with a wash of warning beacons and blaring klaxons. A group of at least 10 more soldiers had already gathered around the door. The handful of doppelgangers popping in and out of existence made it impossible to get an accurate headcount. Puck pushed into the gathered crowd toward the hangar door. Adequin followed, and boots squeaked on metal as they shuffled to give her room to pass. Sir, it's locked down, someone said. Puck looked up from the control screen as she approached, then whispered, I'd hack it, but he indicated the crimson atmosphere gauge. Shit, a vice tightened under her ribs. It had already been breached. Lace would have been in there, working to pull the last Hermes out of storage. Her heart sped, pushing another wave of panic through her chest. The strain in her chest loosened with a thought, and she locked eyes with Puck. The other hanger. What other hanger? A hoarse voice shouted from the crowd. Puck's brow creased. The starboard deck hasn't been used in years. If Lace couldn't deploy here, Adequin said, she'd try the other side. He nodded and she let him take point again, leading the pack toward the starboard access corridor. The decking rumbled as Adequin waited for them all to filter out. 26, they'd be slightly over capacity, but close to Puck's estimated limit. She took up the rear again, and as they jogged, tried to steady her fraying nerves by reminding herself over and over again that they were saving as many people as possible. When they arrived, the starboard entrance stood wide open. 
Inside, fewer than half the overhead lights illuminated the large, empty operations deck, like some sleepy, after-hours, mirror-image version of the port hangar. The blaring condition klaxons echoed off the walls, the endless din driving a piercing spike between Adequin's temples. She jogged to the front of the group, eyes locking straight across the deck onto the open launch bay, where a ship hoist sat clutching a gleaming white circular Hermes in its docking claw. The tension straining her every muscle slackened the smallest fraction. Adequin took off across the large operations deck, just as the decking shifted. She kept her footing but slid forward a few meters, bucked by another strange wave, as if the metal had become rolling sand beneath her feet. She kept running, arriving right as the mooring claw released the ship. Lace leapt from the raised seat of the ship hoist. Rake, thank the void. We need to take off ASAP, Adequin said, her voice a dry croak. We've got 26, can we make it work? Lace's brow lined deep. Sure, probably, but they better get here fast. Adequin shook her head. What? If they're not here soon, we can't risk. Lace went on, but the rest of her words faded away as Adequin spun to face the gathered pack of soldiers behind her. But it wasn't a pack, not anymore, not nearly. Puck, Mesa, and Arandis stood flanked by five others. Five. Puck, she croaked. Where'd they? His gaze swept over the others, his mouth opening and closing wordlessly. They could not have all been duplicates. No way, Adequin said, stepping back toward the entrance. Puck clasped her shoulder to stop her. Rake. It's not good enough, she growled. It has to be. Fuck, we tried. The Argus rocked again, the few remaining lights flickering on and off while the decking drifted beneath their feet, and they all tumbled to the deck. Adequin pushed herself up, then turned and helped Puck to his feet. Lace groaned, cursing under her breath, leaning heavily on her knees as she stood. Just about sick of that, she growled. A soft wheezing drew Adequin's eyes toward Mesa. The savant drew herself to her feet, but stood hunched, sweat pouring down her temples, sucking in air in short rasps. Help her aboard, Adequin instructed. Get pre-flights done and get ready to take off. Puck, Arandis, and the five other remaining soldiers escorted Mesa toward the flimsy ladder that led up to the underside hatch. Puck lifted Mesa up to two waiting pairs of arms, which pulled her into the belly of the ship. Lace's deckhands, maybe. That meant two more, at least. But that small solace did nothing to ease the acidic, bitter weight growing in the pit of her stomach. Puck jogged back toward them. Rake, we gotta go, he said, voice terse. He breezed past her for the launch controls console. I'll stay and man the controls, Adequin said, following him over. Jack'll need someone on deck to give landing clearance. Lace's brow furrowed. What? North? They went to Karin, Adequin answered. I know, but- Lace's confused disbelief swung to Puck. 
Puck's scowl tightened. Joss, it's giving an error. I can't set a delayed launch. With a few quick strides, Lace joined him, then punched in a few short commands. Shit, problems with the exterior hatch. She glowered at the screen, then mumbled, portside control module needs to be repaired constantly. Not surprising, this one's fucked too. Her annoyance softened, and she shared an anxious, almost contrite look with Puck. I'll do, Puck began, but Lace cut him short. No, I'll go. You take her, she said, jutting her chin toward Adequin. She won't go willingly. Lace knelt and yanked a spacesuit from under the launch control counter. Adequin blinked in confusion as Lace tugged the glimmering white suit on. Puck grabbed Adequin's arm and pulled her back toward the Hermes. Lace, Adequin croaked as she stumbled back. Why are you putting on a suit? What are you doing? Continuing to tow her back, Puck mumbled, there's manual control access on the hull. It's the only guarantee it'll open. On the hull? No. Adequin shoved Puck off with imprint-assisted force, and he tumbled out of sight. She rushed back to Lace. I'll do it, she demanded. I've logged a thousand more hours out there than you. I know, sir. Lace said, her tone unnervingly even. But you don't know where the controls are, or how to work them. I'll figure it out. Lace ignored her, grabbing a helmet from underneath the launch control counter. The faintest tug low in Adequin's gut drew her glower back toward the open door to the operations deck. Her knees gave slightly as her balance tilted, and she felt like she was about to slide off the edge of a cliff. The few loose objects scattered throughout the derelict hangar slid toward the outward wall. Circuiter, Adequin growled, throwing her glare back onto Lace, voice taut. I'm ordering you to stand down. Get on that Hermes. Lace continued sealing up her suit, her narrow jaw flexed. Sir, I lied before. What? Adequin snapped. I knew what Moacare meant. I just didn't think you did. Adequin blinked, unable to turn her confused stupor into a response. My anchor. A sharp heat sprung up Adequin's neck, clawing its way up her cheeks. That man loves you, always has. Lace let out a soft sigh, brow creased. Try to save him if you can, please. A lump clogged the back of Adequin's throat. Her lips parted, but nothing came out. Lace's eyes flickered, darting for the briefest moment over Adequin's shoulder. Her imprints were already running up her arm as she spun, and Puck drew back his fist, but they were too late. Everything went dark. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow Stories from Among the Stars on your preferred podcast app to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can find The Last Watch and its sequel, The Exiled Fleet, wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Thank you. Thank you.